Well, we are, we're continuing um, a series in the book of James this week. And if, uh, if you're just joining us maybe for the first time or, or something, this is a, an eight-week series. We're in the sixth message of an eight-week series in the book of James titled Faith That Works. And as I've been saying almost every week, uh, the title of the series has a kind of double meaning because we believe that faith in Jesus is faith that works for the person who believes, who makes a difference in our lives and, and really sets us on, on track for, for a better kind of life, not one free of hardship, but following Jesus is a better way to live. We, re- we really believe that and can bear witness to that. At the same time, our faith in Jesus is faith that works on behalf of other people, faith that has an outworking in the world and will, will impact others, our community, our neighbors positively because of what Jesus has done in our life. Our faith should be faith that works on behalf of others. And James is a very practical book. He, he, he's, he's all about the kind of where the rubber meets the road kind of faith, you know? Like if, if you really believe that you live in a world where a resurrection has happened, what will your life look like? What could it look like? That's the question James is answering. And this week we're at chapter four, uh, which James begins with a couple questions. Here's the first of those. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Remember, he's writing to Christians. So he's asking Christians, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And he goes on to give the answer. We'll, we'll unpack all this through the sermon. But his answer is, because there's a battle raging in here, a kind of civil war between two sides. The Axis and the Allies are both present right here. And, and there's a struggle going on f- uh, to become the primary power. There's a struggle for our ultimate allegiance happening in our hearts. And that, that struggle, that battle, finds its way out and impacts human relationships, causing fights and quarrels, and even murder, says James. But God gives us grace to overcome those things and, and to, to grapple with those things. God provides resources And our part is simply to submit to God and to humble ourselves. So that's the quick outline for the day, the battle within, more grace, and humbling ourselves. But let's listen to the scripture first. James 4, 1 through 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do do not have, so you kill. You covenant, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealousy longs for the scripture he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. 
Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister, judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brooke. You have a wonderful reading voice. That was beautiful. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Both questions, the second is a clearly rhetorical question. In the original language, it's one of those uh, where the grammar telegraphs the answer, which of course is, yes, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Our desires battling within us ultimately is, is the source of the conflict. That word desires is a very interesting one. In, in the Greek, it, the, the word is hedone, meaning pleasure, desire, enjoyment, usually with a negative sense. Kind of, it's, it's pleasure and enjoyment overdone, right? It's not just having one chocolate chip cookie, it's eating the dozen. <laughs> it's not one glass of wine, it's 10. It, it, it's a good thing taken too far, right? It's really from this uh, Greek word that we get our English word hedonism, uh, the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-enjoyment. And it's, it's not so much that the, that the pleasure is bad. That's not true. We believe God created the world good and pleasures are to be enjoyed and we're, we are sensual people, right? This is, this is all of that overdone, making a small g God out of our desires that, that battle within. Um, and James is, is speaking very clearly to a huge issue for all Christians across all times and all cultures. There's a battle in here. And it's a, it's a kind of king of the hill battle. Uh, like, I don't know if you were here in the, in the wintertime, I saw the huge piles of snow out, out back, uh, back of the parking lot. I mean, kids love to play king of the hill on that thing. Like, who gets to stay on top? There's that kind of battle for our primary allegiance. And there's all sorts of stuff competing for that one spot. And again, James is not saying that pleasure is bad. He's saying that the, uh, the pursuit of pleasure is almost always disappointing when you pursue that as an end in itself. It's disappointing and disillusioning. Why? Because pleasure makes promises it can't keep. The desires that battle within are making promises that they cannot keep. Moses knew about that, this. Uh, look at Hebrews 11. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Right? There are things in this life that at first look seem like they would be pleasing and, and satisfying to us, but when the pleasure fades, you realize it didn't really deliver what you were hoping for. Uh, it, even though it said it would, it didn't deliver. That's what happened to uh, Augustine, if you know his backstory. He, he wrote a kind of a famous piece called Confessions. And a big chunk of that was about his wild life before he came to Jesus. Because he pulled out all the stops. I mean, he, he went ahead and lived by that motto, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Uh, which is the, the hedonist's motto, right? Like if there's nothing more, then... Let's go for it. Augustine did. 
in, in all, all areas of life, really, just uh, unplug the moral compass, to mix a metaphor. <laughs> but he, he pursued that. And like, like many people before him, after he had run down that path quite a way, he found himself feeling empty and lonely and emotionally bankrupt. It, it didn't deliver. Writes author John Blanchard, the best cure for hedonism is an attempt to practice it. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. It's the pragmatic argument, right? If you think this will deliver, go for it. You will find it doesn't work. And not only does it not deliver that for which you were hoping, it actually chokes out from your life all sorts of other good things, including faith, at least according to Jesus. Remember, Jesus told many stories called parables, and he told the parable of the sower. And after he had delivered that little visual picture in a teaching, his disciples approached him privately and said, hey, can you unpack that for us? We, we kind of were tracking with you, but we didn't quite get it. So then he told them about what it meant that some of the seed fell on the soil and some on the rocky places and some among the thorns, the seed of God's word. This is what he said about the part that fell among the thorns, the seed. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. There's the word again. And they do not mature, right? Too much focus on the pursuit of pleasure, on the pursuit of our own desires, and our faith is choked and doesn't mature. A life oriented around pleasure-seeking chokes spiritual growth and keeps us captive to a lie. The Apostle Paul mentioned this in his letter to Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And what did it lead to? Well, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's Paul's way of saying, it didn't work. It, it led me in a worse way of living. It, it didn't lead anywhere good. So you know this, and I know you know this because I know it. We, we all have the inner dialogue going on, and you've experienced this, a, a voice in the inner dialogue that says, you know, you, you want this. You, you need this. You should get this. And, and we have to discern. Who's speaking? Is this the world, the flesh, or the devil? Or is it the Lord speaking? Because those are the four options on the inner dialogue. I hope you know that. World, flesh, devil, or Jesus? Who's speaking? Desires, passions, pleasures can be deceptive. And if we allow them, they will enslave us in the sense that we willingly give our lives over to them by continuously pursuing them. It's a willful choice. Then we realize they don't deliver. And then the malice and envy and the being hated and hating one another part starts to emerge. And not only that, James says it doesn't just make for conflict in life, it'll lead to murder. Did you catch that in verse 2? You desire but do not have, so you kill. 
wow, that's kind of jumping ahead a few spaces on the board. How did we get from you know, not, not having our desires satisfied to murder? But it, it every bit parallels the larger arc of God's story in Scripture. Remember creation, Genesis 1 and 2, the fall, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Point being that when we walk away from God, murder is the next natural step. Have, have you thought about that, the Cain and Abel story? We know that you know, Abel offered a better sacrifice. So Cain got hacked off and killed his brother. But why? Have you really probed that? Why did Cain kill his brother? Imagine your way into his inner world and ask for a moment, what did his battle within look like? What desire was so drastically unmet in him that he thought the next logical step was to kill his brother? What's going on in there? Was it a respect thing? Was it a I need to be one step better than? Was it, I mean, you play it out. We've all grappled with these things. What was it for him that got him so far off the rails that he lost all self-control? Now remember, James is writing to Christians now, not to the world at large. He's not saying, hey, people out there, there's a thing going on. He's writing to followers of Jesus. Christians are not only not immune to the battle, it's really only when you become a Christian that the the battle begins to rage, that the two sides become apparent. Because previously we were just enslaved and deceived by by the lies, but but now we know both sides, right? One one commentator I really respect called, called Christians a walking civil war, that all the while, there's this struggle within. The Apostle Paul experienced this and and with great vulnerability gave us a little picture into his inner world. How did he experience this battle within? He, He wrote this, so I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Wow, that nails it, doesn't it? You know that. I know that. That's true. There's so much more to talk about with this battle within. His primary way we experience life and faith and spiritual conflict day by day. This is a reality for us. There's a battle within. And and God has told us that he is jealous for us. He's a jealous God, meaning he wants first place in our lives. Think back to the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. I want to be on top of the snow heap. I want to be your king of the hill. But like Paul, we're all fighting that battle and sometimes feel like we're losing. But like so much of the Christian life, the answer is not, hey, just try harder. The answer is something different. But at first blush, it would seem like James is just shoveling coal into the oven and and 
accusing us, kind of heating it up. He writes this, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Oh, great. Now whenever I screw up, I'm God's enemy. And I screw up a lot. So what does that mean? I mean, what are we to do? What do we do when we find ourselves friends of the world and kind of positioned against God? Well, James tells us. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now that that verse takes a little unpacking. I don't think about that. Do you think scripture says without reason that he, meaning God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Scripture teaches very clearly that, that God is jealous for us. He doesn't just want kind of our religious devotion in our spiritual silo of life. God wants us, you, me, whole person. Wants our hearts, our spirits. He doesn't just want our offerings. He wants us, the whole thing. Go go back to the Ten Commandments. Commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God James in our passage for the day is simply restating the second commandment he's talking about idols you know things that compete for the primary spot in our life that's what an idol is not just a little figurine on the mantle he's talking about idols in the battle within competing desires trying to pull us away from God and and displace God in our lives and, and our hearts See, this commandment tells us that God wants our soul allegiance not because it's our religious duty, but because he loves us and wants us. And he wants us to love him. It's the amazing thing about the Christian life. God has empowered us, equipped us to give to him something that he desires. Namely, our worship, our devotion. It's it's why we're gathered in this room today. God has empowered us to give to him something that he desires. God wants wants us because he loves us and he wants us to love him with a similar kind of love. So this all means that this is is the take on verse five now, kind of unpacking this in, in regular language. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us is jealous that we not fall prey to deceptive desires that don't deliver. So God, by his spirit, is living right here and is passionate uh, about our purity from a spiritual perspective. Absolutely passionate about it because God loves us that much. God loves us too much to allow us to remain as we are, always working at us, the process of sanctification, the Holy Spirit kind of shaping us to live and lead like Jesus, growing in that way always. God loves us so much that even when we mess up and fall into willful sin, we can know that we're greatly loved. That right here, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within, that an advocate who comforts, guides, restores. And that's what leads James to the very next line he writes, but he gives us more grace. <laughs> God gives us more grace. Now, now remember, James is writing to Christians now. He's not talking about kind of saving grace, you know, the, the, the assurance of pardon that we read earlier today, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. This isn't that kind of grace of coming to know God for the first time. This is grace for living. This is grace for following Jesus in this life. 
Every moment, by moment, by hour, by day. This is grace for a living. God gives more grace. And do you find yourself struggling with some desire? Is there a kind of a repetitive thing that comes up for you? And you find yourself slipping into willful sin. God gives more grace. God will supply the grace that's needed. Do you struggle to control your tongue and, and sometimes find words leaving your mouth like fire from a dragon? God gives more grace. We, we, we can't fix it on our own. Maybe you're facing barriers that by you know, all human circumstances and understanding seem insurmountable. There, there are a number of people in our, in our congregation right now struggling with cancer. Uh, at least one, I'm thinking of Harold Christians now, kind of toward the end of life. You know, death to this life is imminent. Maybe, maybe you lost a loved one over the past year. A spouse, a child. It's super hard. How do I get through this? How do I get over this? God gives more grace. After his exploration of all the worldly pleasures, uh, Augustine wrote this line, God gives what he demands. If God asks something of us, he will provide everything that we need to satisfy that demand. It's, it's the trajectory of the whole gospel. I hope that you know that because that's what makes the new covenant new. In the first covenant, God kept his end of the deal and we were responsible for keeping our end of the deal. In the new covenant, God keeps his end of the deal and sneaks around to our side in Jesus and keeps our end of the deal for us so that God keeps both ends of the deal and that perfect righteousness of Christ is transferred to us. That's a good deal. You see, what God, God gives what, what God demands. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Grace for living. There's no challenge, no obstacle, no situation, no need that outweighs God's grace. Even when we fall into sin, there's an overcoming grace that invites us back to God. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. John Newton knew of this grace. Through many dangerous toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. The greater grace of God. God gives more grace. And it is amazing in the sense that it provides everything that we need, even if we don't feel like it. Asks James, are there conditions for receiving this grace? Now again, we're not talking about saving grace. We're not talking about coming into a relationship with God. All we have to do is for that to happen is to say yes to God's yes to us, right? Say yes, Lord, I, I need that. Th this is talking about God's overflowing, abundant, increasing supply of grace for living. Is there a condition to receive that kind of grace? And James says, well, yeah, there is. It's very simple. There's just one condition. You have to be humble. It's humility. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It's a very basic truth. You can't receive grace if you don't think you need it. 
So, says James, submit yourselves then to God. Think about those five words and don't miss the importance of the word then. Submit yourselves then to God. It says that this submission to God is the logical conclusion based on a reasonable consideration of the facts. Submit yourselves then to God. What are the facts, you might ask? Fact number one, God loves us, is jealous for us. Have you really got your heart around that, that God is jealous for you? Wants you badly, your, your single-hearted devotion? God loves us, God is jealous for us, God wants us. That's fact number one. Fact number two, God gives more grace. Grace for living. Through all of the ups and downs, God will supply greater grace for all the challenges and situations we face in life. Fact number three, you can't access this greater grace if your pride prevents you from seeing your need of it. So the conclusion is obvious. Then, submit yourselves to God. I love James. It's just so logical. The force of his argument is undeniable, isn't it? It's kind of like he's saying, why wouldn't you submit yourself to God? Why would you leave greater grace for living this life on the table and walk away from that? It's kind of like James is saying, look, if you got a better idea, I'm all ears. Otherwise, let's all submit ourselves to God who loves us, wants us, and is eager to supply grace to us. Why wouldn't we do that? And, and James moves on to some more specifics. Uh, there, there are a lot of imperatives in the book of James. You've probably noticed that. In the next few verses, there are six. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So re resist and come near. Wash and purify. Grieve and change. I can't unpack all those today in, in just a single message. So let me just camp out on the resistance piece for a moment. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because that goes back to the battle within. There's a battle going on there. There are multiple voices competing for our allegiance in there. And in the original language, the word resist was a military word that meant to stand your ground in combat. What it meant was, uh, whether you were expecting it or not, when you find yourself in a fight, resist meant to stand and face the enemy. It wasn't retreat, it wasn't evade, it wasn't hop down in the foxhole, it was stand your ground. See, in the battle within you, you have to stand your ground. You must. If you try to ignore the battle, you'll be overrun. If you try to escape the battle, you'll be overtaken. If you try to disengage the battle, you'll be overwhelmed. As followers of Jesus, you are in it. And there's no getting out of it until we die to this life. You must resist. You must stand your ground. 
you ask, how can I possibly do that? With, with the forces of evil in the world that I perceive, and that, that I perceive myself being vulnerable to, how can I possibly stand? If, if James tells us what to do, the Apostle Paul details some of the resources God has given us for the doing of it. Put on the full armor of God, writes Paul, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. <laughs> We've got resources. God gives more grace for this, this command to resist. Look at it, the belt of truth. Truth is a resource. What's true? What's true is that you live in a world where a resurrection has happened. He's alive right now. That's true. Not just a religious idea, not just one of many spiritual beliefs on the, on the buffet of world religion from which to choose. A historical event that has happened, he lives right now. That's true. The breastplate of righteousness. Remember this word righteousness in the Bible, massively important word for Christians. It talks about Back to why the new covenant is new, right? God's sneaking over to our side and fulfilling our end of the deal on our behalf. By legal divine decree, God has said, you're right with me. When by grace and through faith in Jesus, we come back into a relationship with God, by, by declaration, we are justified and granted the perfect righteousness of Christ. Not us doing it right all the time or avoiding bad things or doing all the right things, but simply receiving the perfect righteousness of Christ. Can you see how that would be a breastplate? If you get that in your heart and your soul and your mind, it protects your heart because you're covered. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Back in uh, Roman days, they had a couple choices of footwear for battle, it was a bit like the football team traveling. Are you going to take the long spikes or the, you know, what are, you, what are we wearing today to play? Uh, for the Roman soldier, there was a particular uh, boot, a sandal-like thing that had spikes about that long on it when they were expecting shield-to-shield -shield combat. And the idea was if you stood your ground, you could get those things in the ground and you could stand. Stand firm against the enemy. Oh, what a picture. The gospel of peace is like those spiky boots that, that grounds you, that gives you incredible traction, that makes you solid against the enemy using all of your strength, not just your arms, your whole body. The shield of faith. Uh, you know as well as I do that there are fiery arrows coming our way all the time. They're, they're not hitting us here or here or here. They're hitting us right here. 
meaning they're trying to get into our inner dialogue. Messages are being fired continuously. At least that's how I experience it. I don't know how you experience it. Just boom, 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 boom. Stuff trying to get in there and gain some traction. Well, guess what? You got a tool in the box. The shield of faith. You can actually deflect some of those things. Right? And just by faith deny them entry. The helmet of salvation. Our knowledge of what Jesus has done for us. That guides all of our thinking. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The only offensive weapon in this list, if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard that unpacked somewhere at some time. All the rest of the tools are defensive in nature. This is the only offensive one. And when we take up God's word, the sword of the spirit, we don't strike to injure. We deploy the sword of the spirit to invite even our enemies to the gospel of peace and all that Jesus has done for us. Even them, our enemies, remember, for whom we're supposed to be praying. So we got resources. God provides, God gives more grace for daily living. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Use the resources that God has given. God loves you. God wants you. God is eager to supply grace to you for the task of living to which he has called you. And in all of that, the Holy Spirit will make you more and more like Jesus that we might live and lead like Jesus in this world that everyone everywhere might come to know the goodness of God in the face of Christ. So, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Be single-minded in your devotion. Come back home to that idea. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us. We bless you. You are so very good to us. God, help us first to remember who we are in you, that we are no longer just your servants, but you in Christ have called us your friends, your children even, adopted us into the family. So God, by your spirit, cause our inner dialogues to be guided by that great truth that we are your, your son or your daughter first before anything else. And then God, pour out your spirit on us that we might grow in Christ-likeness. Help us to allow you to speak through us, to allow you to live through us that the world might know that you love us. We love you, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.